The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Sarah Ellison. My guest this morning is an actor, model, fashion designer, and now author, Emily Ratajkowski. She's here to talk to us about her new book, My Body, and we are thrilled to have you. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I want to start with a portion of the book that's gotten a lot of attention, the making of Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines video. You write about how you were sexually assaulted um, in the making of that video, and I'm wondering if you mind taking us back to that moment and just taking us through it. Yeah, um, you know, that particular essay was actually one of the only ones I didn't want to write and thought about not publishing. because I knew that it would get turned into this sort of one-line clickbait thing, um, which it did. Um, So I'm now very excited that the book is out in the world and people can read the whole story in my words. Um, For a long time, I talked about that video as an empowering, um, exciting, fun experience, um, which still remains true. Um, compared to other jobs I was doing at the time. I was truly a mannequin. Um, I would do the front, the side, the back of a shirt. Um, and the other kind of jobs I were doing was shooting with you know, men much, much older than me, you know, pouting in lingerie. And when I got to the Blurred Line set, I was super happy to see that the, the whole set was filled with women. The director was a woman, the DP was a woman. Um, So for a long time, I felt really protective of that environment that these women had created um, and the fun that I'd had and the respect that I felt. Um, There was a moment that I had sort of always brushed over in my experience and really not thought about myself um, because it was incongruent with what I wanted to believe about my position of power and about that experience. Um, And I felt embarrassed um, and humiliated. um, And... um, you know, it was a moment where Robin Thicke grabbed my breasts um, without permission and, you know, the director yelled out, um, but ultimately we decided to continue shooting. Um, and it was a an important moment, you know, especially because I had never talked about it before for me in the book to, to really spell out the evolution of my politics and beliefs and give people a sense of, um, you know, the parts that I didn't want to see or had overlooked intentionally or not um, to sort of really have this choice feminism that I'd held on to for most of my 20s. Um, Yeah, I mean, I understand your hesitation about that moment because I know what it's like when you come out with a book and there's just one line that everyone attaches everything to. But there's so much in here. Let's start though at that in that moment you didn't say anything. Um, you didn't complain and you you mentioned um, in another interview that if you had you wouldn't be famous now and I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you can talk a little bit about that dynamic. I mean, I think models in general are taught um, by the agency that there's somebody younger and prettier and most importantly more agreeable than you who will be happy to take your place. 
I didn't know that that video was going to be my big break. I really just thought I was, you know, making some cash for um, for a day. Music videos at the time were not a big deal. They were kind of like dead. Um, so the the idea of it going viral was never even a possibility. That being said, I I knew that you know complaining and making a big deal out of it wasn't going to do me and what was I going to get out of it by by doing that by having a a large reaction um and that's partly why I didn't and did anyone come to help you did anyone see what was going on and raise an alarm yeah the director um you know stopped the shoot and was like yelling through a megaphone and was like no no touching you know whatever she was like are you okay and there was this sort of really awkward moment where all of a sudden kind of the the confidence and the fun that I had been having was taken taken away um but like I said it, it was a very quick moment um and then we we continued shooting yeah and have you heard from Robin Thicke since the book came out no do you want to hear from him or what would you want him to say if he did reach out no, um, you know, the book isn't about a gotcha moment. It's not about um, canceling. I'm really interested in talking about power dynamics and the culture that allows for these situations and the ways that women can be complicit in these situations as well. And I mean myself. Um, and um, I want to have a larger conversation, not kind of pinpoint certain men or certain individuals and expect them to just solve an issue that's much bigger than one person. So how did you come to write it and did you have any hesitations? I mean, you're getting into so much interesting territory in the book. Um, what prompted you to come out with this and did you have any hesitations about actually doing it? Yeah, I mean, like I said, um, you know, I knew that the, that would be diminished to this clickbait thing and there's so much in the essay really about money um, and being a young woman who was driven by the financial freedom that I knew, uh, the freedom that money and financial success could provide. I graduated high school in 2009, which was right after the um, market crash. And I was watching my older friends, you know, come home with tons of student debt and move back into their parents' apartments and start working at the cafe they'd worked at in high school. And, you know, I'd done a year, I was, I had done a year at UCLA and I decided like, I'm majoring art in art. What am I thinking? This is not a way to guarantee financial success. And everyone had sort of said to me, you know, models have, you can only do this in your early 20s. Um, there's an expiration date. So if you really want to capitalize on this, you've got to do it now. Um, so I had a really hardened sensibility to to um, modeling. I was truly a working model. I wasn't, you know, and something I write about in the essay, I wasn't really dreaming of fame or, you know, I knew that that was that kind of this other level of beautiful, um, sexually attractive women that had a different kind of power with fame and, you know, um, in the world. But I was just really interested in the financial success and, and safety that I could have from modeling. I mean, that, that touches on another topic that you write a lot about, which is the relationship between sex and power um, mm -hmm. and how women sort of make certain, they self-justify certain things in order to, you know, the way that men think about sex and power and the way women think about it are slightly different. But I, want, I wonder if you can expand upon that idea a little bit for us. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think the I say in the intro, you know, I'm I I think that a lot of people will read my book because of the platform that I've built off of my image and my body and my sexuality. Um, so there's undeniable power that can come with um, with with commodifying your image and your body as a woman. Um, I think that's just important to kind of acknowledge that. Um, you know, I also write about Britney Spears and growing up and, um, you know, to me, the most powerful women were the, you know, most desirable, beautiful women. Um, there were presidents and rock stars and all kinds of powerful men. But um, when it came to women, it was really about how attractive they were. And I think that, you know, a lot of my success has been granted to me because I appealed to men. Um, and that's interesting to talk about um, because I think that it shines a light on power and power dynamics and who's in charge. Um, and so much of my experiences professionally, but also even in my personal life have been about impressing impressing men and kind of letting them into, into that circle of power. When the New York Times asked you about the purpose of the book, I'm just gonna read a little bit of this. You told them, this is not a book where I'm trying to cancel them and I've known in my life. I'm trying to defy expectations and also talk about nuance in my identity, but also just in life and in political beliefs. And this is not a nuanced time. What exactly did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that the book tries to do is like the blurred line shoot is a perfect example to be able to hold the truth that there were moments that I had a lot of fun and I felt um, really comfortable and about the dynamic between the women on that set and what that felt like while also talking about what happened, you know, in this one kind of split second. And um, I think that a lot of these essays kind of ask the question of what is the power of my body? Is um, it ever my power? And look at, you know, the ways that I've been complicit and, you know, actually kind of um, tried to work the system and invited abuse in some ways. Um, and instead of making things really black and white, I mean, I think what I was saying about we don't live in a nuanced time, look at our, you know, political world right now. Um, everything is very right and wrong. Um, you're on one side or another. And I wanted to approach, you know, my experiences in my politics with curiosity. Um, so fascinating. I, I want to talk to you about anger. And you mm. write about anger in the book in such an interesting way. You, you recount how you worked through with a therapist, how to channel your anger and how to deal with your anger. I'm just wondering if you can talk about that process and what difference that has made for you um, now that you've gotten sort of more control of your anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I really didn't think that I had a lot of anger um, and that was maybe the issue um, in some ways um, because instead I felt, I mean, I felt shame in general about kind of certain certain things in my life, the way that I felt the world saw me and these situations um, in my book, you know, even as early as 14, 15 personal experiences where um, I had a lot of shame. And um, I think I also felt just ashamed of anger itself. I didn't want to be an angry person. When people ask me about anger, even right now, I sort of have this urge to kind of separate myself from being angry. Um, and I think, you know, I write about it in the book, like 
women often cry when they're angry, whereas men don't. And I think that there's something kind of about about the experience of becoming ugly as a woman when you get angry, and that's how an angry woman is perceived. Um, and when I was writing, I really didn't feel angry at all. I, I really made a point of taking out um, a lot of the kind of punishment that I, I put on myself and on other people. If there was any description or any line that felt like it was had some kind of nastiness in it, I, I removed it. Um, it was like a huge part of my editing process. Um, but, you know, at a certain point I had to sort of acknowledge, like, I am actually, I do have anger. Um, and why am I afraid of the anger? And there is one essay where I think I am very clearly angry at one person and expands beyond that. Um, but I think, you know, being able to recognize anger and as a woman particularly and embrace it um, and say what is my anger trying to tell me um, why am I angry what you know what what does that mean um, is something we have to do more in order to understand like what's going on <laughs> yeah I mean that's not to get overly therapized but um, anger is always a secondary emotion there's something underneath it so it's fa it was fascinating to hear you I mean to listen to you and to read you kind of working through that um, thanks what did you yeah no it was great um, what did you feel like you learned about yourself in the process of writing the book Oh, so many things. Um, and I'm still learning things, actually, especially now that it's out in the world and people are interacting with it and kind of giving me their perspective. And I feel like I'm learning from their perspective. And it's actually a really beautiful part of the process that I I think I had in mind, but I was kind of hopeful about, but also didn't know um, how that was going to happen. Um, you know, one thing I definitely realized was I had this sort of like real need to, um, this real desire to become a creator and an artist rather than a muse and a model, um, which is something that I think gets at the heart of like the word empowerment, which is overused and I've been overusing it too, uh, to the point that I actually don't always totally know what it means. Um, I think it can be a feeling, it can, um, or, you know, it could be something that's as quantifiable as financial success. Um, and it's, I'm trying to figure out the definition of empowerment in the book. Um, but I realized that, you know, only in creating this book and becoming somebody who makes something did I actually feel, have the, sense, the feeling of empowerment. Um, you know, there's other ways that I had, you know, experienced control. Um, but I think that writing this really made me realize like, wow, this has been a quest of mine to become an artist rather than a model. And that that's so fulfilling um, and rewarding. Um, yes. No, when I read your intro, I thought, is there anything she can't do? You've done so many um, different, <laughs> different things. Um, I, I want to talk now about motherhood because you write about mm -hmm. your own mother and feminism and femininity and the way her ideas about sexuality and feminism affected you. Um, so I want to tie that into sort of you're, you're a mother of a son and how you think about feminism and femininity and sexuality in both of those relationships. Yeah, um, you know, I was really interested in the ways that women learn about um, beauty and about femininity um, very young and I think 
often from our mothers who've kind of passed down this wisdom, not necessarily intentionally, um, but just through their own experiences. And my mom had had a very um, specific family. Her father had always said to her, you can't say thank you if someone compliments you on the way you look because you did nothing to earn it. Um, so there was a lot of shame around beauty. And when I was born, um, she very much had the approach and the attitude of it's something to be celebrated. Like male attention can be, you know, feel good and that's that's beautiful. Your body isn't something that you should feel like you're, um, you should be ashamed of. And she really went that direction, which was in some ways really great. It protected me from um, feeling bad about myself um, when there were moments where like a vice principal snapped my bra strap or I got sent home from a school dance for a dress that I didn't even realize, you know, was inappropriate because it was it was tight. Um, and then there was another side of it as well, where I think, you know, without even realizing it, honestly, until I had written the essay, I didn't realize it either. Um, you know, my mother had sort of um, put a, an importance around beauty and the whole world had also reinforced that importance. Um, so as a young girl, I like prayed for beauty. I mean, there's a million things that a young girl could wish for, a child could wish for, and I thought that that would be the most powerful. That would be the thing that would secure me, you know, the most happy and rewarding life. Um, and um, I was interested in just kind of understanding like how that came to be, um, how that young girl learned to pray for beauty. Um, and, you know, with my son, it's it's interesting. He's only eight months old, so he's a baby, um, but oh, he's beautiful and I call him beautiful. And my husband and I are kind of starting to have conversations about like, do we do we stop saying that or do we, you know, do we you know, talk about the way he looks? How do we talk about the way he looks? And I do think it's very different um, from from men and girls, um, men and women, like how they kind of uh, looks can become such a huge part of their identity and their self-worth. Um, but, you know, it's just something I'm, I'm starting to think about now. Um, so I want to turn to some questions from our audience. Um, and I'm going to read or just a couple. Um, Great. How do you stand up for yourself in high pressure situations? So, I mean, that's something that I definitely did not have um, an ability to do. I used to, I mean, I still even kind of struggle. Someone will ask me like, oh, is the temperature in here okay for you? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Even if I'm totally freezing um, or if somebody offers me water, um, I'm like, oh no, 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 I don't need that because I think I have this urge to kind of not really check in with myself and instead, you know, not inconvenience anyone else. And that's something as a woman, I think you kind of are taught that, but especially as a model, the agencies again, you know, are really reinforcing the idea that you need to be as agreeable as possible in order to work more. Um, so now I kind of try to check in with myself and ask myself why I wouldn't try to protect myself. Um, and instead of worrying about, you know, being a bitch, um, essentially, I just go out there and, um, and insert my needs um, and my boundaries. Um, another one from um, 
the audience, we have a question that is, how can we share with our teenage girls the many options of being a girl other than the hypersexual images they see on social media? Yeah, um, it's a wonderful question because, you know, I grew up in a household where definitely we were talking about, you know, all kinds of women, but the ones that kind of made the biggest impression on me were the Britney Spears and the women who, you know, Marilyn Monroe and, and classic movies, they just um, really, you know, were kind of the most impactful. Um, so, you know, I think that one of the th ways that we can kind of deal with that is by giving context and that's sort of what I want to do with this book. I mean, I think that it's important to acknowledge to girls, you know, you don't you don't need to, you know, move away from that necessarily, but let's understand the power dynamics and why hypersexual images of women are um you know, so exciting to the world. And what are the other, you know, what's the perspective we can gain so we understand like that there's other things that are also important. Um, so, I mean, I don't think we can tell young women and girls to stop trying to work the system by posting hypersexual images of themselves. Of course they're going to. And I also don't think we should constantly be asking women to adjust. I mean, I think it goes, you know, women should be able to wear what they want, do what they want, post what they want, represent themselves how they want, um, because we do live in this world where they can benefit from, you know, commodifying their image and body, but giving them context to young girls to say, this is why they're doing this. This is the world we live in. And what are other ways that you can also be appreciated? Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I have two daughters and we flubbed this a bit because when one was very young, she said that it was important to be not pretty. And what we were trying wow. to express to her was that it was important to be adventurous and strong and pretty mm -hmm. wasn't all that important. Um, so wow, we, interesting. Yeah, we thought, oh, mm -hmm. we didn't quite, we didn't quite win on that one. But um, it's hard. It's very hard. As somebody who writes for a living, I have to ask you how you juggle um, the, all, all the different things that you do. Do you have a writing schedule? Um, how do you balance everything? Um, I do a terrible job of balancing everything. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Um, I don't have an answer. Um, you know, right now I'm in the throes of promotion and press for the book. Um, and I feel like I've totally neglected my business um, and I haven't been writing. So, you know, I really, at this moment, I feel especially like I'm just kind of taking things at a day at a time. That being said, um, when I'm writing and when I was working on the book, I definitely um, kind of created a space where I would just force myself to kind of be locked in a room and, and work. Um, oftentimes that meant not writing at all. Um, and when that would happen, I would just read instead. Um, but juggling now also motherhood, it's um, it's really crazy. Um, I don't know how so many women do it. I think um, negotiating like your identity and yourself and what's important to you while also taking care of someone that you, I mean, for me, I'm just like love being around him and want to be around him all the time. Um, and it's, it's a, every day is a winding road. <laughs> every day is different. Um, you talk about control and control over your image um, and also that that can't ever be an absolute, um, that, that, you, that your image is not solely your own. And I just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that dynamic and how um, specifically the, 
you know, the incident where you were trying to buy back um, or get back an image of yourself. Could you just talk about that a bit? Yeah, um, you know, um, I think that's one of the things about being a model or a muse or a woman who's portrayed and likeness is portrayed or even, you know, taken from her. Um, it seems like it would be an empowering thing. And um, I'm thinking of like, you know, the statues we see of nude women in museums. And it feels like this really like, um, like an honor. Um, and it is in some ways, but certainly you lose control. And in the age of the internet, I mean, you don't have to be a model or, you know, somebody in the industry to be worried about revenge porn. Every single woman knows that. And I think also every single woman knows um, what it's like to kind of build an image online. Like even if you just have 12 followers and you're posting a picture of yourself, um, representing yourself and putting yourself in the, out into the world, it can feel like an act of control. And in many ways it did for me, especially um, in my early 20s when, you know, I wasn't controlling models in the 90s, didn't have something like Instagram where they could post the images they liked of themselves. So my early, my first, you know, experiences with Instagram were, were really, it felt like empowering and about control. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've had many, many different experiences of photographers, you know, publishing books without my permission, um, paparazzi taking my picture without consent. And then, you know, I use the image to actually make a, a statement about paparazzi and then get sued for using the image that was taken of me or um, artists have used images that I post on Instagram to to make art and sell um, their their artwork. So um, one of those examples, I, I actually did procure, procure the artwork um, and then made an NFT um, of me standing in front of the Richard Prince that was in the intro um, and sold that. But funny enough, I mean, I've, I've made a decent amount of money from that, um, but I've actually used a lot of that money, the majority of that money to fight the paparazzi suit. So it's sort of an ongoing battle with control and um, image for me. And what gave you the inspiration to sell an NFT um, of that image? That's such an interesting, I mean, it's such a new phenomenon. I'm just wonder if you could get into that a tiny bit. Yeah, I was postpartum um, and I was like high on hormones, to be honest with you. And everyone was talking about NFTs. Um, and I think I had like one glass of wine, which I was breastfeeding, so I was not really drinking. And I felt a little loopy and was like, NFTs make me think about women and control and ownership because that, you know, once I really understood what an NFT was, it was about, you know, having ownership and, and being able to trace an image um, or an NFT a code that exists online and, and knowing who owns it and also having part ownership of it. Um, and I liked the idea that the Richard Prince, which is an Instagram basically printout on canvas from mine, you know, taking something from the internet, putting it into the physical form and then like returning it back to the internet. Um, I liked that idea. And, you know, I was just thinking about OnlyFans and about the ways that women are kind of trying to claim, reclaim ownership and control over their image and the internet and how also it feels like such a battleground um, again like revenge porn huge problem um, and I had you know been victim of a 4chan hacking where my iCloud was um, very personal images of me you know without my consent again we're all over the internet um, so I had this really opposite you know experiences with 
my image and the internet and the NFT felt like this um, kind of conceptual idea that that brought up so many of these things I'm interested in. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, I believe I read that you started writing this, start, started writing these essays on your phone, just notes on your phone. I always find the process of how someone starts to do something like that so fascinating. So we don't have a ton of time, but I'd love for you to explain that to the audience. Well, I mean, if you had told me three years ago, you're going to write a book and publish a book, I think I would have been terrified um, and and also in disbelieving. Um, and I think for me, you know, being able to just write in my notes, it took the pressure off um, and also allowed me this like ability to kind of like jump from one idea to the next, which I is why I love essays so much as you can kind of lace together lots of narratives and um, the form is so open and free. Um, and yeah, I would just write on on notes in my phone. And then eventually, you know, when I felt like I had enough transfer it to a Word document and kind of sheep like I was basically tricking myself into thinking that I wasn't writing so that I didn't feel pressure. Um. Well, I'm afraid that we have to leave it there. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for thank sharing so much. Um, all these ideas with us. It was really great. Um, thank you again, Emily. We're thrilled to have had you. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here. It was really great. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.